0: Jimmy Ness. I'm a writer and photographer based in Melbourne, Australia. I've completed dozens of interviews, but I must be a slow learner because I've never shared any audio online until now. This is my first go at it, so forgive any rough edits while I figure this thing out. This is an interview with New York photographer Adam Morelli. Adam has shot masters from all over the world. Japanese knife makers, Italian sculptors, gondola carvers, real old school maestros. Adam himself studied under a Zen monk for 7 years, he also spent a decade apprenticing with a master builder. We discuss his life, what he learned shooting tribes in Vanuatu and shooting master craftsmen, and how we can become masters ourselves.
1: No, I didn't know artists, I didn't know what a professional art career actually looked like. If you were a lawyer, like I knew people who like they were lawyers, they went to offices. And people worked in corporate. I mean, I growing up in northern New Jersey, there are a lot of um, corporate headquarters, pharmaceutical headquarters, like AT&T, um, you know, Lucent Technologies, like th- these types of jobs. I'm like, oh, people drive to a very big parking lot. They go to a very large, like, geometric-shaped building, and this is work. I didn't know any artists, so I didn't know what that, like, what did that? What was that going to look like? That was a total unknown to me. I had tried during university to do, I will say, I have sort of a touch and go relationship with, with work in that like I had friends who were really driven to like the work. They were going to do internships and then they were going to get jobs at certain places and like they had a real clear view of it. Um, and I would usually prefer to spend like my university summers like I like drawing and doing a bit of painting and I wasn't so keen on kind of working but I didn't come from a wealthy enough background that I could do like nothing I remember wanting to apply for a Guggenheim internship and my father being like you're gonna work all summer in New York and no one's gonna pay you like he's like I'm not gonna pay for that like (laughs) you're nuts so a lot of the like arty jobs that that wasn't – it just wasn't a, a feasible option. So when I finished university, the last semester there was a brief period where they gave us professional training. I mean if you could call it that. Um, but a lot of teachers had been bartenders and waiters and waitresses and, and worked in odd jobs. And I was like, this doesn't sound appealing to me at all. Um, I've, I mean – being a waiter. I mean, I worked as a, as a bar back in a strip club for one night. That was my closest bit to hospitality. And I hated that. <laughs> so it's like, I'm not going to, I don't want to do this. I had grown up working at a country club in like the, you know, in the, in the pro shop cleaning golf clubs. I was a terrible caddy. So I stayed more in the shop and I didn't really like the service end of things. So I thought I had a big bent for architecture when I finished school and a uh, I, I like I distinctly remember like stepping off the corner at like ninth street and third Avenue being like maybe I'll like maybe I'll do the building thing, like maybe I'll be a contractor. Um and the first the first firm that hired me, they were just starting a project that was I mean to date, it is probably one of the nuttiest apartments I've known in New York City. It was a four-story penthouse that was having a fifth floor added. Um, to house the client's art collection, so it, to me it was like I never knew collectors. They were this mythical, you know, millionaire, billionaire realm that they just—you knew they existed. They showed up, engraved on museum and gallery walls, but like I didn't know any of them. Um, and it was a, it was an interesting opportunity to see, like, well, this is someone who's literally building a house around a collection of art and a collection of contemporary art, it just blew my mind. And in the process, the building part was like, wow, like this is, this is cool. This is really like, I'm kind of getting paid for a second education. And I kind of went on to continue building for art collectors, um, some artists and people where art played a significant role in their homes. And it made, really different homes than the ones that I saw growing up. And that was fascinating and rewarding.
0: Man, I I like hearing these stories because I think if you look at anyone's like LinkedIn profile or the bio on their website, it looks like they followed like a linear path, like one thing led to another. And, And I like hearing stories like this because, you know, obviously you've, you've done stuff, but it wasn't, it wasn't all leading up to this one moment.
1: Yeah. It like, I knew I wanted to be in New York that like, I remember when I, freshman year in university, um, I went to Fairfield University in Connecticut and I was supposed to play lacrosse, decided like I'm done listening to coaches say like, get your head in the game and blah. I was like, just finished with that. So I found myself studying art at a liberal arts school that had a really not a very good art program. And a friend from high school who was a year older than me, um, Mike was at, he was at NYU and we went to, me and my roommate at the time, we would all all three of us had gone to high school together. Mike was just a year older and we'd go into New York and um, we'd grown up skateboarding and snowboarding together. And both these two guys were like, I mean, if you want to do the art thing, man, like you got to go to New York. Like you can't, Connecticut is not going to be it. So I transferred, I applied to transfer one application. I didn't apply to like, cooper union and columbia and nyu and parsons and i just i was like nyu okay and that was it and i got in um and it was that was a that was as far as i could sort out was like okay new york might be the place to be
0: and obviously you know reading your bio you you also trained with a zen monk was that was that concurrently and was that kind of because you were searching for meaning in your life or what what kind of happened there
1: I had the – so the, the – trying to thread the needle through all of that It was yeah. I was – so I had been in construction for the first firm that I worked for. I did – I worked for them for a year and then the, um, the client sued the construction company and the construction company laid off – it was a small firm. But they laid off like four or five people and being the youngest one there, it was like I was out. Uh, so I got a job for another construction company and that's where I met uh, – Mark Allison's the builder I worked under for years, and now we work together as partners. It's a really it's a strange thing to like, bring your building mentor into a, into a project that now we're kind of off in a different direction. Um, but I was, I was working in construction for a few years, and it was, I was young. I mean, I was, I was really young in charge of job sites, which meant that everyone was 10, 15 years older than me, and I had to, to some extent, be the one in charge on site. I was working as a site super. So everything that gets built on site is under the project manager does all the, um, they do more of the, like the contracts and the purchase orders and change orders and all the, more the administrative stuff. Um, but I was telling guys a chunk older than me, like how I thought they should do it. And sometimes... There was, there was certain things I think that art school helped me with in construction that like a lot of people who don't come from that background struggle with um, and, and very clear examples like I didn't mind building things out of order. A lot of tradespeople they learn to do it a certain way and they want to do it like that way because that's like – that's the most sensible way to do it. Resident, high-end residential construction does not work like that. I mean things are often ordered – wildly out of sequence and you're, I mean, you're ordering finish architectural metal or millwork, you know, cabinetry and things where you still have rough walls and like doing these things out of sequence for me was, I was like, Oh, this is fun. Um, but a few years of doing it and it was also really taxing and being on site with guys all day long. And in the evening I was like, I need a like—I need a break. I need some bit of silence and this got me to the Zen thing where I I wrote to a former professor who his bent was architecture. He was on his way back to Cornell to do a PhD, uh, but he had spent time in Thai monasteries. He had us meditate in class when we were in college. I thought it was the dumbest thing in the world. I was like, man, I'm what, paying like $40,000 a year to sit on a hardwood floor with my eyes closed. Like, are you out of your mind? Like, fucking teach me something. Like, so I, Lawrence and I had a real, like, we had a tough relationship with one another, um, but I like Lawrence and he made a big impression on me. And when I asked him about this, I was like, hey, are there any monasteries in New York? And he said, like, keep your eye out for him. Like, there, there are a handful. He's like, I don't have any, I would like recommend from experience, but um, keep an eye out. The next day I walked past a place in the East 60s and there was a little placket on the wall. that said Zen Study Society. And I looked it up online, and they had an open meditation on Thursday evenings. It's like two and a half hours. You do Zazen and Kinhen. It wasn't too much information on the site. Um, But I went, and it was, for anyone who hasn't done Zen meditation, the the, the rhythm of it is usually a 50-minute meditation period, and then a 10-minute walking meditation period, and then that... You can do it, say, three or four or five times where you do like 50 on 10 minutes, 50 on 10 minutes. Um, And it was painful just sitting there. I mean, it was really challenging but somehow fascinating. And if you weren't like too much of a mess, they would invite you back to to other morning and evening meditations. And that's how it started.
0: Did any of those, um, those Zen awakenings, did they pertain to photography? Like, did you, cause I know, for, again, for people who don't know, I know part of meditation is, you know, you'll have an awakening or you'll come to a realization like that you didn't expect to have. Um, and that's obviously a big part of it, as you know, did you, did you encounter anything that kind of changed the way you thought about photography or there's a, or there was a revelation in the way you thought that you still apply now?
1: The revelation moments in Zen practice, at least that I've had so far, played out in photography, but they didn't, it wasn't like a one-to-one connection. I think it was, uh, Zen gave me like a really firm base of discipline that nothing else did. I mean, I had some from sport and some from school, but nothing, nothing like what I got in Zen practice. And I think the the deprivation of time, like either in the monastery or in the zendo in New York, um, there were lots of art ideas that came about. I mean, I think in in that way, you're supposed to quiet your brain, but early on, I found it very stimulating to see how to see how my brain was working. And a lot of times it wouldn't shut, it wouldn't like chill out. It took a it took a number of years to start to like hear the hum of my own self. And that was that I mean that was an uncomfortable process in I will give you an example. The the place that I went to had there were two pla- there were two Zendos. There was one that was in New York, which was in an old townhouse. Um, and that was, you could still hear New York. I mean, it was quiet, but even when you do meditation at like 5.30 in the morning, the city, there's still some rumblings. You can still feel the rumble of a train, like you can still feel the sixth train on the east side. Um, and you could hear things. When I went upstate to the monastery up there, I went up for the first time in the dead of winter, and it is... Miles off any main road, and it was completely snow-covered. My ears rang for a day and a half when I got up there, and it. What I realized was like uh, the over-sensation, like over-sensitized existence in New York. I it, I wasn't even aware of it. It just seemed like that's the way my ears were. I wasn't listening to particularly loud music. It was. It's just that was the buzz of myself in New York, and when I stepped out of it. And got that distance and silence and isolation. Only then did I start to like, see a part of myself that was not visible in, uh, in my everyday life in New York. And it changed. I mean, In one very practical way, it affected photography. I stopped shooting a Hasselblad and started shooting a Leica. Because I had gotten a bit of permission to take some pictures around the monastery... Um, but the Hasselblad was too loud. The like the mirror flap was just—it was like slamming a door. And I had heard about the cloth shutter of the Leica thing, and I thought, oh, maybe that might be a better option. Um, and that was a contributing factor in my like, these this that like trip to Guatemala where I'm like this equipment's too heavy. Um, in the monastery, I'm like this equipment's too loud, uh, and that led me to shift systems a little bit, which is a weird, uh, probably a pretty weird reason for it. I think any Leica shooters, anyone who's selected Leica for anything and gives any reason, I mean, most of the internet just chews it up as horseshit. They're like, ah, it's just nonsense. You wanted a fancy camera. And it's like, I mean, I was shooting a Hasselblad. It wasn't like I wasn't shooting a nice camera. It just wasn't working for what I was trying to do. Um, and the, the monastery was a, that was a part of that process.
0: And so obviously... I'm I'm trying to again cuz you know it's it's funny because like I said the if you look at someone's bio you think one thing just leads to another so perfectly because so I'm going off your website and places like that there and obviously you know you were you were shooting the um the Zen Temple and stuff like that and and how did that kind of connect up with you your trip to Vanuatu
1: There was a guy who I knew very loosely I'd met him in in college and I, I mean, I say knew him, like I met him, he would have never remembered me. And he started a Vanuatu Pacifica Foundation. It was this idea to, um, have like an artist residency in the South Pacific. He's like a very digital music guy. And like he saw it, he was trying to make like a digital detox thing. Anyway, um, I'd seen the website and there was like a, you know, like a contact us page on it. And I sent a one one line two line email and it was like new york city builder with artistic background send like there wasn't it went to the director this guy jordan at the time and i didn't know whether they'd respond or anything but it seemed like seemed cool seemed like they were trying to do something i wasn't sure what they were trying to do um but i sent that and to my surprise they wrote back and they said that they were looking to um they were looking to do like an artist residency thing and they had gotten some permission from the local chiefs to build little cabanas for artist residents and they wanted to do like a little pilot thing so it turned out like they'd found a guy to do solar and they needed somebody with some building experience and I'm like well, that much I can kind of handle I had, you know 2010 was like the last project that I was running on a job site where I was there like you know 40 hours a week and I had opened the studio so I was doing a little bit of consulting, but doing work in the studio. And then the Vanuatu thing came up and I was like, yeah, I mean, I have the time to do it. It's a really, it's super weird. The project went, ter- I mean, terribly south. Like nothing really, nothing worked correctly. Like the way that it was supposed to go from like... The fundraisers and the administration, like nothing worked. Nothing like the, the director and the founder had a falling out in the process. I was supposed to be out there for like eight weeks. I was out there for three. Um, so on paper, the whole thing was a total fucking disaster. Um, but while I was out there, it I had some really eye-opening experiences about the role that like photography played different than sculpture. Um, and also the... The experience of stepping in, I mean, Vanuatu for me, was like, I couldn't have gone to a farther place on the planet. I mean, Tana, Tana is a tiny island in the chain of Vanuatu. It's not even like the Fate is the main island. Like this is a, it's a 10 by 10 island. thats I mean, it's not miles away from like the, I'm sure Spielberg had it in mind when he did Joe versus the volcano. Like it's, it seems so out there, um, but it was a formative experience in a in a totally unexpected way. It changed the way that I looked at a lot of things. Um, I don't know, like what parts of it uh, your audience might be interested in hearing, but they they played out in ways later where, um, like, I stepped off email for three weeks. I, I mean, I had a cell phone, making a call back to my like girlfriend, now fiance at the time. I mean, it was ridiculously expensive. I was digitally cut off from the world, and having started a studio and feeling like you know, photo stuff and clients, and if they can't reach me, I mean, it certainly crossed my mind that like I was committing professional suicide by vanishing for three weeks, and when I came back. It didn't matter. It, like it really didn't matter at all. It, everything in my head that I thought was going to like fall to pieces because I couldn't answer an email, um, everything was like just where I left it. And I I went on and not too many years afterwards to speak at um, South by Southwest's conferences and their V 2 V, which is their like business to uh, business conference. And people there, I mean people in the audience are on they're on laptops and iPhones and iPads, like all at the same time that a speaker is going. I mean, it couldn't be any more digitally connected if you weren't like hardwired to the ground yourself. And I was asked to speak in one aspect of what's it like to actually disconnect. And that was to me, it was like, Oh, that's normal. I've, I've now done it. Um, to other people they are like, Oh no, no, no. Like I can't do that. It's like, they're more afraid of disconnecting than they are of like sharks. Uh, so that's a I wouldn't have anticipated going to a South Pacific island to learn how to get off of email and like social media but that was that was one of the strange revelations that, that happened in the course of that.
0: And were you a, were you a photographer at that stage or what, what was kind of your career at that point?
1: I this is always a, like a weird question with like artist and photographer like at what point do you count? at what point can you say like, I'm an artist or like, I'm a painter, I'm a photographer. Like had people paid me for work? Yes. Like had I done like some minor editorial stuff and done commercials, you know, boring commercial shoots, anything from photographing real estate to doing like uh headshots. Like I had done that stuff, but it wasn't, I certainly wasn't known for anything. Um, I was really interested in the culture side of things. I, I had, pitched the project to Leica um, they had no virtually no interest in it um, though I thought it would have been a very good fit for their types of projects that they were trying that they were starting to promote um, so I had a photographic base I mean I have a degree in photography so by my standards I was like yeah I'm a I'm a photographer but in this way like The paid aspect of that trip was to create a body of work that gave people back in New York some inkling as to like, what is, like, what is Tana? Most people would struggle to find it on a map and to um, describe anything that made it culturally distinct. So that was my, that was my tasked assignment while uh while shooting and they said you can shoot other stuff if you want but like that's the that's the part we want you to focus on
0: like what you're known for well at least in my eyes is you know you you've worked with these kind of masters and um you know you've worked with people at the top of their game when you were going through this process so when you went from vanuatu and i know then that you were you were seen by the japanese government and they invited you over to japan as you were going through this process of like starting to photograph people at the top of their game, were you yourself feeling like you were super fluent with the camera? Like, were you, did you consider yourself an expert by the time that happened? Or were you still kind of making your way through the lower end of projects?
1: I was pretty comfortable with the shooting side of things. I mean, particularly by the time I went to, uh, by the time I went to Japan, I had a, I had a clear idea that I described to the Japanese reps in New York uh, that uh, you know the project was going to be – I was shooting black and white. My, my interest in, was to, to look at craftsmanship and look at a few fundamental questions that I – being a builder myself and understanding that most of what I learned in building was an oral tradition. It wasn't studied in books. It was from working – with people and watching how they worked and learning how they worked in person. There's no, YouTube wasn't a thing then. And I was curious to see like with master craftsmen, people who were doing lineage tradition, five generations, 10 generations, I think 17 generations was the oldest I ended up photographing was to see how they did it. And to, enter into their workspace, not as a photographer, not a journalist. I've always kind of made a very clear distinction. Like I'm not a journalist. Um, I've done editorial work, but I don't come from a journalistic background. I have no interest in like this, uh, the, the objective truth and like reporting. It's like, this is not my thing. What I, if what I shoot and what I talk about is very much from my own perspective. So it has a, it has a huge professional bias in it. I mean, I look at, I look at builders as a builder. I'm, I'm not like a. I'm not a person with a camera telling a story. Like if I, not, of course not all workshops, but like there are a handful of workshops that like I've gone into where I could have put the camera down and picked up a tool and like done. I could have been useful to them, as a maker of stuff. Um, and that's because I have a familiarity with metalwork and woodwork and had designed built things in construction for years so it wasn't my interest was to look at it as a builder not someone who has this like first impression approach of what's going on inside of the world because the journalist articles and craftsmen complained about this with pretty consistent regularity across countries they'd say like like the journalists just don't get it they want like if you go to Sakai and you go to like the knife making sword making like Everybody wants the picture of like the blacksmith hammering the metal at the moment when the sparks fly. And it's like, that's the journalist shot of knife making or sword making, swordsmithing. To me, I was like, I, I, I mean, I know what that looks like. And th- that part was not so, it, that's the obvious part. I think the more, the more compelling parts were like how they worked with their the range of tools and the range of materials and what level of technology they engaged in. Because a lot of them were working on machines that were built really in like 1960s and earlier. Um, and this was everything from like the Japanese denim producers to blacksmiths, woodworkers, like to see how how do you get from raw product to something that is considered a national treasure. Like the only thing that, it, that separates like the wood in a temple from the wood in the lumber yard are the people who touched it in the middle. And I wanted to understand like particularly like Japanese carpentry at its source. I wasn't going to get Japanese carpentry in New York. I get a few pieces of furniture here and there and it just wasn't, it wasn't anything I was going to be able to get like from the source and going to Japan and working with these With these craftsmen, most of them let me in because of my construction background, not because of my photo credentials. They don't – how do they want an artist floating around their (laughs) workshop? It's just a huge liability. But if they could see projects that I had built and I had run, they're like, oh, like this guy, he should be fine. We'll probably have an all right time with him. And that really – I think that gave the Japanese government some confidence in it because I wasn't – they had had a uh, journalist like flake out on them on a project a year prior. So they were really like, they were kind of gun shy of like, you know, you have, if we plan this, like you can't not go, you have to to like, don't do what that person did. Um, And so those were the assurances that went into it. And then when we went, it was, uh, it, it ended up being like really interesting to go through a range of craftsmen in such a small geographic space, but that was all, like everything was connected one to the next it was really like you could you could see the tools and the objects that each craftsman make like you could some of them you could actually find in other workshops so there was a real thread of continuity to it which was nice
0: and and i guess if we kind of semi fast forward to today like you've you've shot these kinds of people all over the world like i know you've worked with like venetian gondola carvers you've been to japan several times and you've always had this kind of interest in what you call craftsmen what other people might call masters of their trade because they're multi-generational have you found like because you because you're you're gaining access to like something that something that's in the movies it's the mr miyagi kind of stuff but as someone who's been and seen the reality of these kinds of people what have you found are the similarities between them? Is, are there certain traits that they share as kind of master craftsmen who are part of these multi-generational heritages?
1: I think for sure. I think the, the culture of craftsmen, if you put craftsmen next to one another, the nationality is sort of less significant, but the way in which people approach materials and that like that conversion of materials into something I find is there is a real continuity to it because they they almost never talk about perfection. right? Craftsman conversation, like there's this idea of like, oh, well, how do you get to the perfect block? This is like, this doesn't even happen. It's a lot of it. A lot of the conversation is around like problem solving and trying to understand how like different nuances in their production can be like how they can be amplified. It's almost like if you get like a, an equalizer for like a stereo system, like most of the things that are produced in the world are like flatline, like everything's right in the middle. And industrial production is, is like that. It's just like it's, it's flat. It's right in the middle because the people who are making it, someone who's working in car manufacturing, like they don't go from the very beginning of, of the production, like in the design and the engineering all the way to the end. Craftsmen do. Craftsmen, like, they, you know, they'll grow the tea leaves, but they'll go all the way down to, like, working with tea masters directly. So they, their relationship with their material is something that they use as a, like, a mechanism for learning. It's like, it is the lens through which they view the world, and it's how they, it's how they relate to things. Like, they almost relate to people in the same language in which they understand materials. Um, and that's irrespective of country. I mean, countries have different temperaments, but um, I think they have more in common than they do in difference. And it's why you'll see places like, um, Italy and Japan, I think are a very good example because they appear to be an unlikely partnership. But you will find a lot of, uh, um, Japanese apprentices in Italy and they're working for tailors they're they're doing leather production whether it's like producing bags or making shoes some of them stay some of them go back and they have this these cultures like to some extent I mean to some extent everybody has it but some are really sort of known for it um, the, like the Italians are known for the things that they made the, the Japanese are known for it um, the French are known for it. The English are known for it. Everyone's got a little different temperament to it, um, and this back and forth of how craftsmen deal with their with their materials and with their approach, like they they're really attuned to the things around them over time, to like the environmental conditions as they affect their like their raw product, to like the shifts in markets as Interest change and some of them stall some of them like they don't succeed anymore because they they lose touch with that connection to what's going on around them or they tap into a new international market where they realize like oh somebody has this you know extreme appreciation for something that was previously only local that is now much more international and I've seen that uh, I've seen that kind of grow, internationally it's not like like one like just the japanese have done it i think it's it's really across uh, it's it travels across borders
0: i think what what probably helps you is you know you you have this background in art and sculpture and it all it all kind of blends together in this awesome way um i think i think that kind of leads into your teaching a bit as well and that you it's i think it's surprising on the internet well i now know looking at it from a future tense but how much of like kind of art history and like all these all these different facets are kind of like almost ignored when you look at like online photography education but the way you're teaching is kind of looking at classical artists and looking at masters of their time and stuff like that that's that's also a really unique approach i think because for some reason you you don't see a lot of that online i think that's why your teaching's been a big hit you know you don't see people looking at classical art in that way don't you think that's kind of strange
1: yeah, I would agree that it's strange. I think the um, photo has a real double-edged sword in that it's very accessible, so I mean anybody can do it. Um, but to really like get past any of the superficial effects that you can just do with whatever camera or phone you can pop out of a box, um, I mean, photography is just like it's the it's the baby it's it's the baby child of um, of art making. Like they're all. These distinctions in sculpture and painting and photo, video work, you know, rendering, design, these are all like sections on a, on a bookshelf. In my head, they're, it's the same library. It's like if you express something in two dimensions or three dimensions, you have different things that you have to deal with. But the whole exercise is like you're going from something that's like sort of in like it's in my mind only. And I'm trying to get it out. And I don't get it out like a writer. I don't get it out like a musician. I get it out like an artist. And some things lend themselves very well to sculpture. Other things lend themselves very well to photography. And not wanting to be limited by the medium, I had to take some time to really suck at doing most of them and learn how to do them. Like this your talent and gift and all this stuff, it's – trust me, I was not good at most of this at the – at the outset, I could like nominally draw better than my classmates in the fifth grade. Um, but at any point, like when I wanted to learn how to do sculpture, like I didn't know how to do woodwork. I didn't know how to work like hand saws and hand planes and joiners and radial arm saws and chop. I didn't, I mean, you kill yourself with some of those things if you don't know how to use them. Right. And I, I didn't, I had to learn and I had to understand how the materials work too. So the, I think coming from a background where art was not prominent where I grew up, I found a real kinship with art history. I found other people in books, uh, in museums who seemed like me. I'm like, oh, we're interested in the same thing. They've done it much better than I can do it, but I'm interested in this. So the, the resource pool for Classical work or contemporary, I mean, anything, really like anything in art history is available because it's some visual translation of an impulse that some person had that they wanted to bring into creation. I think it, it sounds a little weird to, or pretentious, I think, to say like, you know, one is a creator, but it's like if you make things, if you make things, you can be called a maker. That's sort of fine. But if you create things and maybe it's like parsing words a little bit, but like if you're going from like design conception to execution and the whole way through, it's like, I don't know, like I, I like to make things. I like to create things and I didn't want the limitation of it. And I found that people who were taking an interest in photography, they had other interests in art. They just didn't know where to to go. They didn't know like, it was like someone hadn't given them the okay to go learn about it and not be particularly good at it. So they would feel, they'd feel like adults. Most adults don't like to feel stupid. I I found most of the people who came on photo workshops with me, if they had the luxury to travel for a week in a year or two weeks in a year and do a photo dedicated workshop, it usually meant that they were pretty good at something else in their life. And the consequence of that is that if you're, comfortable being good at something you don't want to be made the fool to not be good at something and working with people to say like yeah like it's cool you don't have to know about this just tell me like just tell me what you like just give me some indication as to when you see something you see a painting you see a movie you see a comic book. just like whatever it is that when you see that thing you're like that's i want to go in that direction and i just un I just helped them unpack the language backwards to say like what you're looking at today came from somewhere. Like let's look at some of that lineage and then you can use – that whole lineage is yours. Like you don't don't need me after that. Like I can just lay out a little – a few lily pads to get you to where you want to go and then you can expand endlessly in that direction. So I don't – I will tell people often when I work with them, especially one-on-ones like this is not a lifetime thing. Like by design, I'm trying to get you out of here. I'm trying to get you to swim on your own and then let's go surfing. Like let's let's go have fun. If you're drowning, the surfing part is no fun for me because you're drowning. I want to get you swimming. And then when we can do that, we can have a lot more fun together. Does that make sense?
0: It does. And it's, it's also because I've kind of heard you talk about the um... – you know, obviously, you know the ten thousand hour rule when it comes to mastering anything. I heard you talk about like in your experience, that's mostly true. But it is possible to at least find your feet within a fraction of that time, and then the rest of your journey you can actually enjoy. It's not like a hun- it's not like ten thousand hours of pure grind, and then suddenly you're a master. It's a process.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a. Uh, I, I heard there's a guy Jerry Lopez. He's a he's a famous is a famous surfer. Um, he kind of rose to his professional prominence. I think Jerry started winning like pipe masters and things in the late 70s. Um, but he had a little sound clip in a film where he was talking about the tr- the transition between like being a Grom, like being a beginner, and then sort of developing into something that was not that. And it's he described it as like a slow fade. And I think that's what it is, is like in at the beginning, I mean, you go to a ski slope, you go to a beach, you watch people surf, like they just kind of fall on their butts or fall on their faces. But then something clicks and then you don't. you like, oh, you didn't fall. You're not a professional surfer, you're not a professional skier at that point. But in, in not falling, in like starting to get the feel for things, you get a dexterity in it. And if if you can enjoy that process, if you can enjoy that learning process, that 10,000 hours or 7,000, 15,000, however it flushes out for you can be a really enjoyable experience. But if you look at it like a countdown clock of like, ah, I still have like 9,234 hours left. Like it's going to be pretty, it's going to be pretty daunting. I've not met most craftsmen, like the masters of the shop will say like, it takes about five years before someone's like really useful to them. Seven years, they can kind of start to work on their own. Um, and I found that to be pretty consistent like, put your, you like, put your time to it and you can, I mean, you could do it a lot of it. I mean, considering I heard in comparison to the 10,000 hour rule that an average human lifespan was 700,000 hours. I don't actually know if that's true. I, heard, I think I heard it on a podcast or something. But if it is, it actually makes the 10,000 hours seem kind of small. Right? It's a, it doesn't seem so uh, – 10,000 against 700,000 seems like, oh, I could probably get good at a handful of things. It just might take like I'm 40. It's It's, it's taken me 20 years I think of doing – building and painting and drawing and photography to feel like I have a full dexterity that like – I can go into the kitchen, pick out whatever ingredients I want, and I'm pretty confident. Like I'll, I'll come out with something. It's going to be pretty good. I don't know how good it's going to be. Is it going to be exceptional? Like those ones, they, they tend to pop up in a way that's not so predictable. But like, like on balance, like I'll paddle for the wave. Like I know I'm going to get it. Like, And it's easier for people to get there than they think.
0: Again, when I was listening to your lessons and you were talking about like the masters of um, art and stuff, because for me, and I think like you said before, I've always thought this is like a super, super lofty genre, a little bit pretentious. It's just, it's just, you know, not for me, I've always thought. And then I started getting really interested in it, hearing you talk about it. And then you, you said things like, you know, Da Vinci, when he started out, like you can see his sketchbooks. If you, if you read these guys' lives, it's, it's not just like it is in cinema, like, they didn't, they didn't all start out and they were three-year-old geniuses that could make these amazing sculptures. Like they struggled and you can actually read their biographies and see that they started just like you did. Maybe they reached higher highs, but they, they did really start as amateurs and you can watch their process if you just look into it.
1: I think that peeling back through artistic biographies, I found to be one of the more encouraging ways of study because it's like, Oh, how, I mean, you, you see it in so many different ways and there are at least in popular culture, things are becoming visually a lot more accessible. Like you can just see stuff that in the past you couldn't like growing up skateboarding and surfing and snowboarding. Like I I grew up on the East coast. There was not like, it was not huge surf, like finding surf films and things like Bruce Brown did the endless summer. And like, There were, there were a host of like little culty things, things like things that were subculture. And I put art into a subculture. It's not a mainstream thing. If there's no visual access to it, people, it's really mystifying. Like, how do you get there? How do you get to this point from being nowhere? And I think a lot of entertainment television has started to look into this. So it, we see now the trajectory of people when they went from like I just watched that series they had on Netflix, uh, the Last Dance on the uh, yeah. Chicago Bulls. I'm not a basketball fan. I mean, I grew up in the era of Michael Jordan, but it was like that was not my that was not my life. But if you have a basketball bent, like you can see the trajectory and how it goes, and when someone goes from being like a little spark of some ability that a coach recognizes and how it develops and how challenging the whole thing was throughout the course of their career. Art, there are not many, like, more recently there have been better art biographies. I mean, most art books, the ones that I read in school, they were crushingly boring. Like, you'd have to be a lunatic to really get into this stuff. They were so dry. And the artist artists' lives are anything but dry. they just were passed through this academic filter of research and establishing terms and phrases and I mean like art theory is most of it most of the stuff that I read in in school I'm like this could have been one tenth the length if we just took out all the extra academic nonsense like it doesn't need to be that complicated, but I think that art always being viewed as a non-essential um, that people in that profession, the people in the profession of, of art like they kind of make it important. One thing to make something important is to like make it a bit more esoteric so that other people don't get it. But the consequence of that is that people who might be into it don't get into it. I mean uh, they make professional sports pretty accessible. If they were really difficult to understand, no one would watch it. But they don't. They give you, like, all of the information all of the time. There's a ton of information on it, both, like, forward-looking and backwards-looking. I mean, so it's really, really – it is accessible. You find me, like, ten very good art documentaries. Like, I I might be – after ten recommendations, like, I might be out. I might not be able to give you any other – ones that I thought were like, Oh, that was really like, that was really good. With people trying to get into art and not having like to get away from art with like the capital A where they sort of feel like, Oh, I don't have the background for it. And I don't have this for it. It's like, there are no, there are no real requirements. Like you can develop a pretty simple working knowledge of some of the areas of art that might strike you. And you can apply them in your, if you're a photographer, you can like, you could start to like do them. There's, you don't have to like wait necessarily. You can take the lessons that artists have left for us along the way. And like, they left them like a toolbox. Like they didn't, they didn't design a wrench for you to not use it. Like to put it in a box and look at it and never touch it again. Like the whole thing was like, look, if I went through the innovation of coming up with the wrench, fucking use it, you know, use that thing and learn how to use it well to, to its to its fullest extent
0: thanks for listening to my interview with adam you can find him online at adamorrelly.com and at amworkshops.com you can also check out my writing and photography at jimmynest.com